For the second to last time, would you stand with me as we read John chapter 17? John chapter 17, the great high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true Son, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and have Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. You may be seated. Well, this is our final Sunday morning message in our series, Blessed Assurance. We'll finish it off tonight with one of my favorite topics of all time. Really almost bonus material tonight is what we're doing. But I want to spend just a few moments briefly reviewing from the very first message, the rationale for doing this, uh, this series on assurance of salvation from John 17. And, and whether you've kept track or not, we will have gone through every word of John 17 just in a different order The question of eternal life is bound up not in doing good deeds, not in good works. Our good deeds are worthless before God, but the question of eternal life is bound up in knowing God. We saw this in verse 3 when Jesus said, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. But then the burning question really becomes, Do I have eternal life? Do I know the only true God through Jesus Christ, am I truly saved? Was my faith enough? Did I sin too much? Did I only fool myself into believing that I was saved? Is my faith genuine? That's a pretty important question because it is an eternal question. There's soul-shaking questions which really can plague a Christian. Now, to a certain point, those are actually good questions to ask. Paul warned in 
in uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5, he warned the Corinthian church, the leaders in particular, examine yourselves to see whether you were in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Three times the book of Hebrews warns those who believe themselves to be Christians or perhaps are on the verge of saving faith, do not harden your hearts. The Apostle John warns of false believers. They went out from us, but were not of us in 1 John 2.19. Jesus himself warns of self-deceived false believers. He says famously in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. As a matter of fact, the last series that I preached in John, John 15 and 16, we called this costly Christianity. And we saw that that portion of the farewell address of Jesus Christ proves that true followers of Christ incur cost. We incur pain. Not to gain salvation. Salvation is free, but in order to follow Christ. The true believers will suffer. True believers will take up their cross to follow him. And so those warnings are explicit, they're needful, they're necessary, and countless false Christians will be judged by God in the future for their failure to heed those warnings and to their failure to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ savingly. But we also said that here's how we ought to think about those warnings. Those warnings were made broadly and generally to all people who at some level mildly associate themselves with Jesus Christ. To the church attender, to the one who says, I believe in God, to the one who's convinced himself of his own self-righteousness. But then Jesus gathers his own, those he calls in John 10, the sheep who hear and know his voice. And now the tone changes tremendously. Now, instead of warnings against false faith, the Lord Jesus gives overwhelming, almost redundant assurance of the genuineness of our conversion and the certainty of our future with him after our deaths. To know that you know that you know the only true God, to know that you know Jesus Christ whom he sent. And so what we're talking about then is assurance of salvation. And we pointed out at the very beginning that there's a difference between assurance of salvation and security of of salvation the security of your salvation is something you have whether you know it or not the assurance of salvation though is the certain knowledge of the security that you already have and our entire point in this series from john 17 is that assurance absolutely cannot come from external subjective evidence it can't come from something in my heart can't come from something that happened Here are some less than reliable evidences of salvation. I pray the prayer. I attend church faithfully. I enjoy the Bible. I serve in my church. I remember the moment I received Christ. I was baptized. I was baptized again just to make sure. I felt the divine presence at some point. I knew in my heart God loved me. Those are all subjective. Those are all things that will lie to you. They might be true, but they might not. But the true believer is measuring the fruit of salvation first, and then you have assurance of salvation. Now, I've all throughout this series deliberately not spoken much about the fruit of salvation. I wanted to focus primarily on the topics which are addressed directly here in John 17 in our text. But I think it would be a helpful detour just for a a moment or two to see these fruits of salvation. We've mentioned them in various ways at various times, but not all together in this particular series So I'm going to divert our attention here just for the time being. What should I be seeing in my life if I am truly saved? What should I be seeing? John 15, 5, Jesus said, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And so what are the things you should be seeing? And we'll just take this little detour here and then really get to our text in John 17. The first thing you ought to be seeing is belief in the biblical gospel. Belief in the biblical gospel, that, that's our starting point. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, anyone can say they believe the basics of the gospel, which is that salvation is not by works, 
but solely by the grace of God through faith. And so that alone doesn't demonstrate salvation, but it is a necessary starting point. So we believe in the belief in the biblical gospel. Here's the second thing you ought to be seeing, and that is a hatred of your sin. A hatred of your sin, because it dishonors God. 1 John 3, 9, John says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning, because he's been born of God. If you've been born of God, you long for total sanctification, which will be completed at the end of your life. But you long for Christ-likeness. You long for the transformation of godly character in your, in your heart that's hard-won through prayer and through discipline and through the Word of God and through suffering and hardship. Speaking of the Word of God, this is something else you ought to be seeing. The love of and a grasp of the Bible. The love of and the grasp of the Bible. Psalm 119, verse 97, the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 13, Paul says, We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Now, Obviously, our view of Scripture is that it is eternally deep and infinite in nature, but it means that our ability to grow and learn the Word of God is also infinite. It should be. It's endless. The true believer longs for God's Word, is learning it day by day and week by week and month by month. You love to read the Bible. You love the preached Word. I, I very often love the idea and, and seeing and witnessing a new believer who has this attitude toward the Word of God. I've had some of you, when you first came to faith, you come up with your Bible with this giant grin saying, this makes sense now, and I can't stop reading it. There was one young man a few years ago here, and on Sunday morning, he looked like he'd been run over by a truck. And I said, what happened to you? And he said, oh, I, I'm pretty sure I just got saved because I read the whole New Testament like four times last night. Yeah. That's the fruit of salvation. Here's something else you should be seeing. The love of God's people. The love of God's people. We've hammered this point home many, many times. Simply read all of 1 John. You cannot escape the fact that true believers love other true believers. And this love manifests itself in numerous ways. Romans 12 says it manifests itself in our use of our spiritual gifts within the church. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 says this love manifests itself in submission and proper attitudes toward your church leaders. This love manifests itself, by the way, in church membership. Church membership is the means by which leadership confirms your testimony of salvation, which leads to a desire to serve, which happens under the submission of the elders in the local body. And without church membership, there's no testimony of salvation, no commitment to serve and certainly no submission to elders in love. So you should be seeing love for other believers. We say this all the time. Live your life in the church. If you're not saved, that sounds like a nightmare. If you're saved, that sounds like a pretty great way to live your life. What else should you be seeing? You should be seeing a deep desire to obey the law of Christ. A deep desire to obey Christ. John fourteen fifteen. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my what? Commandments. 1 John 2, 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. By the way, you know how I know as a preacher that true believers yearn to obey the law of Christ as found in the New Testament and the principles as found in the Old Testament? You know how I know? I have very clear evidence. And the evidence is that week after week after week, I keep hitting you between the eyes with truth that is convicting, it is guilt-inducing, it is humiliating, it's soul-crushing, and week after week after week, you keep paying me to do it. Why? Because to the true Christian, obedience to Christ is everything. It's everything. We yearn to love Him, and to love Him, we must know how to obey Him. What else should you be seeing? You should be seeing the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is listed in Galatians 5, beginning in verse 22, as love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. 
You're certainly not perfectly reflecting the fruit of the Spirit, but the true believer yearns to do so, doesn't fight against it, doesn't balk at obedience. The true believer prays for this fruit to be manifested in all that he or she does. One more thing you ought to be seeing. The internal witness of the Holy Spirit. The internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, beginning of verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now you might be saying, wait a minute, that's subjective. No, that's not subjective. This is not emotional. This is the Spirit of God through the other fruits I just mentioned and just outlined bearing witness to you that you are in Christ. That those things are happening in your life and the Spirit of God confirms that. The Spirit of God bearing witness that you indeed believed the gospel, you hated your sin, you love God's word, you love God's people, you desire to obey Christ and you are bearing the fruit of the Spirit in ever-growing measures. Now, having tested yourself according to the fruit of salvation, the big question then remains, but will I stay saved? What if my faith isn't enough? Can I sin my way back to perdition in hell? Is that possible? And that is where John 17 has been so helpful for us in giving us objective evidence that's outside of ourselves, outside of our experience, outside of our emotion, outside of our history. Now, so far... We've said that we can have blessed assurance because of the Father's glory, the Son's glory, the Father's sovereignty, the Father's choice, the Son's authority, the Word's power, the Trinity's protection, the Church's unity, the Son's work, the Saint's rebirth, and the Father's love. These are airtight. These are undeniable pieces of evidence, frankly, any one of which is enough to help you to sleep peacefully at night in the certainty that God will complete your salvation. But this morning, I want to address our second to last piece of evidence from John 17. You can have blessed assurance because of the Son's prayers. Because of the Son's prayers. The prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is pretty obvious because all of John 17 is an intercessory prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ by our great, our great high priest. And I saved it for near the end for that very reason. You know, one of the most powerful and comforting things, comforting things that you can say to one another is, I will pray for you, and we will always assume that you'll actually do that. We, we, we leave that to you, but I know for me as a pastor, so many of you share how you have and you continue to pray for me and for my family, and, and, and I, I feed on that. That's, that's incredible. That's amazing. Some of you have even said that's a daily practice in your family, and I, I can't tell you how that strengthens me, how that strengthens my family. And with one another, I've seen you praying together in this very room. I've seen this particularly on Sunday nights after church. It's, it's, that's a good time to pray with one another. And really, to pray for and with one another, it's the very best thing you can do for another believer. Because what are you doing? You're representing them to a loving, gracious God. Listen, to say, I will pray for you is to show the highest concern. It's to demonstrate the deepest brotherhood and, and sisterhood. It's to love at a cosmic level. It's to fellowship together at the foot of God's throne. To say, I will pray for you, is to petition our very creator for help. And it's to demonstrate, really, the very highest spiritual care you can give to someone. It's the best thing you can do. And so when someone says, I will pray for you, this should generate joy, it should generate excitement and confidence in God's work in your life. Jesus promised in John 16, 24 that all prayers according to God's will will be answered and that should bring joy to us. Paul commanded in Ephesians six eighteen that we should be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Intercessory prayer is the work of the Spirit of God. It, it's spiritually produced. It's spiritually empowered. In other words, praying for one another isn't a human idea. It's God's invention. Intercessory prayer is the means by which God often works in the lives of His people. I mean, it's thrilling to hear the promise of Christ in John fifteen seven. If you abide in me 
and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. That's very exciting. How many times have you ever sat in prayer and said, Lord, today I'm going to ask you literally for everything I can think of. When someone is praying for you and doing so consistently, they are in fact fulfilling the wishes of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus told a parable in Luke 18, and it was that they ought to pray and not lose heart. They ought always to pray. But let me ask you this. If you're encouraged by prayers from and by and for one another, how much more should we be encouraged by the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Particularly concerning our salvation. And so we could ask this question then. How do the Son's prayers provide assurance? How do the Son's prayers provide assurance? I want to just briefly show you three ways that this happens. We'll begin in John 17 and springboard to some other texts as well. The first of three ways that the Son's prayers provide assurance of salvation. First of all, they reflect the Father's will. They reflect the Father's will. Jesus said in John 5, 36, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So this means that the Father has sent Jesus to do specific works, a set of tasks to accomplish. Now, John 17, verse 9, Jesus says, I am praying for them, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And so one of the works that God the Father has given God the Son to accomplish is the task of intercession, of praying for those who belong to the Father and have been given to the Son. As a matter of fact, Jesus gets extremely precise and specific in his prayers for you as God's elect. You remember over in verse 24, right near the very end of this prayer, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, I, I want to just take apart that request. I know we're, we're revisiting this, but that's the fun of doing a topical series is we can revisit things anytime we want. I want to take this apart and I want you to notice a few features of this particular request that Jesus makes. First of all, Jesus addresses his father once again. He says, Father, I desire that they also. This isn't just the mindless prayer habit, which sometimes we may say Lord or Father or Jesus about every third word in our prayers. I I don't know if we think that adds a little extra oomph. I think it's just generally a bad habit. But Jesus never spoke an ill-timed word. He never spoke an uncalled-for word. And so before this request, he's beginning a new thought by re-addressing his Father. So he addresses his father once again. Another feature is Jesus expresses his desire. That's the word he uses, I desire. This is a Greek word that simply means he wishes something. This is something he wants to see happen. Now this is pretty important because Jesus has already fulfilled a qualification to have his wishes granted. Follow the logic here. In John 15, 7, Jesus said that if we abide in God through Christ, ask whatever you wish. Same Greek word that Jesus uses to say, Father, I desire, and it will be done for you. Three verses later, John 15, 10, Jesus said that he has kept the Father's commandments. He has abided in the Father's love. What does that mean? It means that Jesus has fully qualified himself through total sinless obedience to receive all All that he asks for from the Father. And what does he desire? It's the third feature of this little piece of the prayer in verse 24. Jesus wants you to see his glory. That's his desire. He wants you to see his glory. Listen, not as written in the scriptures, not as a dream, not as a vision, not as described in a sermon, not as an imagination, or not as you just think it might be in your heart. Jesus wants you to see his glory where he is, to see it. He wants you to be with him. And listen, this isn't just a metaphorical, invisible God is with me. This is the reality of being in the same physical proximity as Jesus Christ. That's what he wants for you. And where is Jesus Christ? 
Hebrews 1.3 says that after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where does he want you? Right next to him. That's where he wishes that you are. Now, did you follow the biblical logic? Here's the logic. It is God's will for Jesus to pray for you. Jesus has perfectly qualified himself to have all of his requests granted and his wish and desire is for you to be where he is. Therefore, that is what's going to happen because he's qualified. Look, that alone gives us enough assurance to just close in prayer and go home. But I want to nail this down, this assurance down even further. So the first way the son's prayers provide assurance of salvation, they reflect the father's will. Absolutely reflect the father's will. Here's the second way they provide assurance of salvation. They repel Satan's accusations. They repel Satan's accusations. Jesus prays for your spiritual protection in verse 15. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You keep them from the evil one. Now, we've already mentioned in this series a number of times the ministry of intercession, which Jesus Christ is currently fulfilling at his Father's side. We read from 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I think sometimes, though, when we think about the intercession of Christ where he sits at the right hand of the Father, we are very surprised, and I know Christians are sometimes surprised to find out that there is a third person in that little drama. That it is the origin. That person is the origin and the epitome of all that is evil and wicked, Satan himself, the fallen angel of light, that he's there as well. The Bible is extremely explicit, very, very clear about Satan as standing before God to accuse God's people. The most blatant example is contained in Job chapter 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And of course, as you read the book of Job, you find that all of this was according to God's plan. Satan was allowed to destroy all that Job had, even his health. And Job refused to curse God. He refused to turn away from the Lord. Now, to be certain... Job had a few questions for God because he didn't know what was happening behind the scenes and he didn't always handle himself with full faith and integrity. But Job, after the deaths of 10 children and the loss of all of his physical possessions, what was his attitude? Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. Far from cursing God, Job blessed the name of God. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, of course, Job never knew that he was simply the means by which God was proving Satan wrong. I I would have to imagine that when Job arrived in heaven, that has to go down in history as the biggest aha moment of all time. I said, wow, that makes a lot of sense now. But in fact, the book of Job is a spectacular argument for blessed assurance. Why was God willing to put Job out there like that? Because he was so certain of Job's salvation that he let Satan do his worst in full knowledge that Job was already preserved by God and would never turn away. He couldn't. It wasn't possible. And you might say, well, thankfully, that account of Satan standing before God is in the Old Testament several thousand years back. We're a New Testament believer. Satan's no longer a problem. And then we get to the book of Revelation. We find out uh, Satan's still a problem. Uh, Revelation 12, verse 10 
tells us what Satan is up to today. He is called, quote, the accuser of our brothers who accuses them night and day before our God. Uh Uh-oh. So Satan is standing before God lying about your sins. Not exactly. Satan is standing before God telling the truth about your sins, which is much worse. He's calling into question why God would ever save you. And he's pictured as accusing you day and night. Now all of a sudden, that picture of Jesus Christ interceding on your behalf, that elevates it up a whole new notch of drama, doesn't it? But thanks be to God, Hebrews 7.25, we read this morning, if Satan is accusing you day and night, Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What's that mean? That's an idiom that means day and night. That as Satan accuses you day and night, Jesus intercedes for you day and night. If the accusations of Satan are constant, they're matched and surpassed by the fact that the consuming task of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he always lives to intercede for you. And what is his defense on your behalf? Eh, Perhaps Satan is using his old trick of quoting scripture to God, saying, you said the wages of sin is death. What is Christ's defense? Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. His defense is, yes, the wages of sin is death, and I did it. I died for him and for her. His defense is, yes, the wages of sin is death. And I, who knew no sin, became sin on behalf of all who would believe in me. How comforting to know that Satan can only do what God gives him permission to do and that Christ will advocate for you continually. There's a pretty chilling example in the New Testament of what Satan wants to do to you and how Christ's intervention in prayer now makes all the difference. You remember this. Jesus told Peter, and he called him by his pre-disciple name, Simon. That name represents his sinfulness, his unsaved, unrepentant self. He said in Luke twenty two thirty one, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. What does that mean by that? What did Jesus mean? That Satan has demanded to so shake Peter's faith that he would turn away from Christ, that he would be just like Judas. And what was Peter to do? Jesus continued, but I have, what? Prayed for you. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, Peter didn't have any idea what Jesus was talking about. And immediately, what did Peter say? He said, I'll go to the prison with you. I'll go to the death with you. Jesus then told him that before that very night was over, Peter would deny Christ three times. But ultimately, Peter's faith would stand. Why? Because Jesus said, I will pray for you. And I have prayed for you. The prayer ministry, the intercession ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ is indestructible. He always lives to intercede. Therefore, your salvation is indestructible. Can't be touched. The first way the son's prayers provide assurance of salvation, they reflect the father's will. The second way, they repel Satan's accusations. We'll do one more. The son's prayers represent your greatest champion. The son's prayers represent your greatest champion. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago the comfort and the joy that we receive from praying for one another. But in all reality, don't you get just a little more comfort from the prayers of those who are clearly walking closely with the Lord? Let me put it this way. When someone that you happen to know is not walking with the Lord in faithfulness in any way, shape, or form, and that person says, I'll pray for you, we're not excited about that. Because you're, you're thinking... You know, you can't even pray for yourself very well. So why would I entrust my life into your prayers? But there is something to that doubt. After all, James 5.16 says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. You may be more familiar with the old King James, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So who do you want praying for you? We want the most righteous man who ever lived. We want the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, his prayers were always answered 
Jesus himself said so. When he was standing before the tomb of Lazarus, getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, John 11, beginning in verse 41, records, So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. The Greek word for always, always means always. It's really simple. He said, you always hear me. And so, while we appreciate and cherish that we pray for one another, that our salvation may be secure, what we truly rest in is the supplication of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. In fact, to kind of close out the main part of this series and our time together, we'll we'll kind of have an addendum tonight, but I want to show you a unique glimpse at the intercessory prayer of Jesus Christ. This is a text we looked at very briefly a few weeks ago. But I'd like to have you turn with me to Zechariah chapter 1. And I'd like to revisit this in some detail. Zechariah chapter 1, because this gives us a unique glimpse into the intercessory work of Christ. And and I want to spend some time setting this up so you can see the amazing principles we have here before us. God is going to speak through the prophet Zechariah concerning a now humbled and humiliated Israel. Zechariah is right near the end of the Old Testament, if you're still searching Israel is humbled, they're humiliated, they've been cast into exile, and now the discipline of the Lord is upon them for turning away from him. We begin in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Now, this is an important time period. This is in the second year of the reign of Darius the Great. This is not Darius the Mede that we see in the book of Daniel. That's a different person. But Darius the Great had spent the whole first year of his reign putting down all kinds of uprisings that were happening in the new Persian Empire on several fronts. He was a genius military commander and he successfully waged several civil wars simultaneously and won all of them and he restored peace to the Persian Empire. And so Zechariah here begins with this painful reminder of Israel's current situation, their dilemma, the historical circumstances of sin that got them there and He cautions his hearers that God's anger has burned against the sins of his people and that the exile to Babylon happened because of the obstinance of their forefathers who who spurned the preaching of the previous prophets. In verse 6, Zechariah recounts that some of the Jews repented before the exile, but it was too late to avoid consequences. For example, King Josiah, the 15th king of the southern kingdom of Judah, he was faithful he was obedient and so the lord promised that punishment is still coming it's too late to avoid that but it just wouldn't happen in josiah's lifetime and now after this introductory message to the exiles he records his first of eight prophetic visions a sort of waking dream verse seven on the 24th day of the 11th month which is the month of shabbat In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And so this is a vision of a man on a red horse. He's standing, meaning he's on the red horse, or standing among the myrtle trees. There are other horses behind him. 
But since verse 11, as we'll see in a moment, refers to a plural of men answering, it means the other horses have riders as well. So you have four horses, four riders. These riders are clearly spiritual and heavenly, so they can only be angels. That's the only option. They're sent by the Lord to patrol the earth. Now, this is important. In Scripture, the primary significance of horses is military. Horses were the most important military weapon in the ancient world. They allowed armies to move quickly, efficiently, and with great power, and to develop a threat instantaneously. And so, these angels are a representation of the military might and the power of God as he exerts his total sovereign dominion over all events. And so it seems we have on the red horse a commander angel with three officers with him. And these angelic horsemen are among, it says, the myrtle trees. Now, myrtle trees aren't really trees at all. They're just big giant shrubs. But there's a particular significance to the myrtle tree. In Scripture, the myrtle is most famous for being used in the construction of the little booths or tents or tabernacles in the Feast of Tabernacles, which remembered Israel's wilderness wandering. It also celebrated God's blessing at harvest, but was very, very highly associated with the hope of a coming Messiah. As a matter of fact, you remember we went through John chapter 7. We talked extensively about this, that Jesus Christ came and really made his biggest and boldest public proclamation, offering himself as Messiah. And when did he do it? He did it during the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, because it's about Messiah. And so here you have these four horsemen in the myrtle trees, really very, very indicative of the subject of Messiah. But there also seems to be an angel who is sort of Zechariah's vision tour guide, I guess we could call it. Verse 9, the angel who talked with me. But now it gets really interesting because there's the angel who talked to Zechariah, the vision tour guide. And now another angel is introduced in verse 11. And they answered, the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold all the earth remains at rest. Now, this angel has two descriptors. He is the angel of the Lord. This is a technical term. We've discussed this recently and in detail to speak in the Old Testament of the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ prior to his birth, specifically to protect his own future ministry and to protect his people. And he's also the one who is standing among the myrtle trees. What does this mean? It means that the rider on the red horse is the angel of the Lord with three of his top angelic officers. And this makes total sense to us. A thousand years earlier, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Joshua in Joshua 5 and he identified himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. And so he's standing, meaning he's seated on the red horse in a grove of myrtles, making it more obvious that this is Messiah many centuries before his birth. And the other angels, they, verse 11, report to the angel of the Lord on the red horse that they have patrolled the earth and all is at rest, all is at peace. And you might say, well, what's wrong with that? You remember that Darius the Great has just quelled a bunch of civil wars and now peace is reigning in the Persian Empire. But Israel's still in exile. Israel is in trouble. The world is at peace. That's bad news for Israel. The ancient Near East is now under the oppression and the Gentile domination of the Persians and something needs to be shaken up. Otherwise, Israel just goes into the night never to be heard from again. And so now, the angel of the Lord prays for his people. Verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years, the second person of the Trinity is addressing the first person of the Trinity and he's praying for the exiles. And he does several things in this prayer. First of all, he appeals to his father's sovereignty. He appeals to his father's sovereignty, his total dominion and control. He addresses his father as Yahweh of hosts. Now, the Lord Jesus acts as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the angels, but under the direction of his father, who is the Lord of hosts, it's a specific way to acknowledge that God alone has all the power. 
If somebody asks you the theological question, how much power does God have? The simple answer is all of it. All of it. And so he appeals to the Father's sovereignty. There's something else he does. He declares urgency. He declares urgency. He he laments the state of his people. He uses a phrase we see in the Psalms all the time. How long will you have no mercy? This isn't a request for information. It's 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 begging. It's an entreating to say, please move quickly and decisively to save your people. How long? And the third thing he does is he appeals to God's own promises. He appeals to God's own promises. He says, how long will you have no mercy since you've been angry these 70 years? Oh, this is key. What is the angel of the Lord doing? He is quoting scripture back to the author of scripture. Jeremiah 25, 12, Jeremiah 29, 10. God promises that after 70 years, he will deliver his people. Now, there's two really good possibilities as to when the 70 years ends, uh, begins and ends, rather. In either case, they're both 70-year periods. In fact, it becomes very complicated to try to figure this because the Israelites were exiled in three stages, beginning in 605, then another time in 597, and finally in 586. And then they returned in stages as well, beginning in 538 and going almost another century. So if you ask the Israelite in, in in exile, when do the 70 years begin? Well, we don't know. It's kind of pretty vague here. And so they needed to know what's going to happen. Zechariah is receiving this vision in about 520 BC. The first group of exiles has already returned, but they're just a little tiny group, not many of them at all. Almost all of Israel is still in exile. And so there's fear that perhaps they missed their chance. Maybe there's no hope that the small bunch that returned, that that was it. That was God's big deliverance, that God is not restoring their fortunes. And so what's then the result of this prayer of the angel of the Lord? The answer came to the angel who was speaking to Zechariah, verse 13, and the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And thus Zechariah was now given his prophetic mission. Here it is. Verse 14, so the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For what, boy, if you're a nation and you're at ease and God says, I'm mad at you, get ready to go to war and you're gonna lose. That's what's about to happen. For while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built on it, declares the Lord of hosts. Then the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Whoops, we just overflowed the boundaries from the humble return of a few thousand Israelites into the millennial kingdom. We just see now a double fulfillment. That's another study for another time. But did you hear how the angel of the Lord interceded for his people? He appealed to his father's sovereignty. He declared urgency and he appealed to God's own promises. How long will you not have mercy since you've been angry these 70 years? If Jesus Christ is the great mediator and if he appeals on the basis of the Father's sovereignty, and he declares urgency, and he appeals to God's own promises, what do you think are the odds that's what he's doing in John 17? Would you turn with me back to John 17? If Jesus Christ is the great mediator, the great intercessor, we should expect to see those same elements, and we do. First, Jesus appeals to the Father's sovereignty. Verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, the Son has been given authority by his sovereign Father who has all authority. Verse 7, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Everything that Christ has given and done is from his sovereign Father. This is the sovereignty of God. In, In verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you understand that the Sovereign Father already had a list of those that will be saved? He's already chosen. And we looked at last time that the the choice of God didn't happen in a point in time. That's just for our human minds to understand the choice of God for you has always been. 
He is sovereign. So Jesus appeals to his father's sovereignty. He also declares urgency. Verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. There's urgency here. I I wonder how Peter responded in his own heart and his own mind when Jesus happened to say, by the way, uh, Peter, or he called him Simon. Simon, uh, Satan has asked me for you. Oh, that's terrifying. What did you say? You didn't say yes. That's terrifying. And then he declares urgency in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Immediately focus your people on the word of God. He declares urgency and that's how we are saved because we believe the word. And verse 24, there's an urgency. Bring them to where I am. Why is that urgent? Because you get about seven decades to make an eternal choice. And he prays for you. And he appeals to the Father's own promises. And we did this before, but Jesus, if, if I can put this down to very human terms that we can understand, Jesus is like a son with his father who says, gimme, 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 gimme. Over and over and over again. He appeals to the promise of God. How often do we see this? Verse two, you, you won't be able to follow this. Verse two, to those whom you have given him. Verse six, the people whom you gave me. Verse six, you gave them to me. Verse seven, everything you've given to me. Verse nine, those whom you've given me. Verse 11, those whom you have given me. Verse 24, those you have given me. Seven times Jesus says of you, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. And he says to his father, I want them. He appeals to the father's own promises. The prayers of Jesus Christ represent your greatest champion because he will not be denied any request and his request is that he wants you with him. I don't know about you, but that gives me great confidence that as my old heart is fluttering and gasping and about to beat for the last time and as my breathing becomes difficult and I wonder when the last breath will be, And as I blink slowly, and I wonder when the last blink will be, and they will simply stay closed, I have confidence that Jesus has prayed, I want him. And therefore, Jesus gets his way. That gives me comfort. I hope it gives you comfort. Take heart from this. Take comfort. Take blessed assurance from that. Our Father, we give you thanks that you have a perfect son who always has his prayers answered and he has requested that we would see his glory where he is. I praise you and thank you for the great confidence that that gives us and we would give all glory to Christ for this confidence, this assurance. It is in his name we pray, amen.